This is Kathy Nicholas, and I'm your guide for Kathy on Earth, a podcast about life on Earth, everything from koalas to water lilies, and also the people here on Earth and how we relate to nature, each other, and other animals. In this very first episode, I'm honored to talk with Molly Alves. She's a wildlife biologist who spends four out of five days in wild spaces outside of Seattle, Washington, in the Pacific Northwest of the United States. I have to say I was jealous when I found out that sometimes that involves flying around in a helicopter and getting dropped off in remote locations because Molly and her colleagues are managing wildlife populations, including wonderful beavers. I was blown away at how absolutely awesome beavers are and not just because they're cute and industrious, When they build dams, they actually help tons of other animals survive. You have to hear this for yourself. Molly and I also talk about sustainable hunting and human wildlife coexistence, as in how to live with a beaver in your backyard. We also explore the good and the bad about people getting outdoors more during the pandemic. And Molly tells me about how seeing wild polar bears in Canada changed her direction in life. I learn how beavers decide what trees to use for their lodges, which leads us into talking about how we can make more thoughtful choices about the stuff we bring home. And she tells me about some of the products she likes that are plastic free as she transitions to a zero waste lifestyle. You can learn more about them in the show notes. Oh, and there's a cameo from one of her animals. I really hope you enjoy our conversation and come away with a greater appreciation for beavers and wildlife biologists like I did. Well, hi, Molly. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and what you do. All right. Um, My name is Molly Alves. I'm a wildlife biologist for the Tulalip tribes who are a sovereign nation or a a federally recognized tribe in Western Washington state. I guess in short, my job is to manage the subsistence resources of the Tulalip tribe. So um, in wildlife, that means huntable species. So I work with elk and mountain goat um, and essentially ensure that there's sustainable hunting um, and that those populations are healthy so that there's hunting opportunities for present and future generations of tribal members. I also manage the Tulalip Beaver Project where we are relocating beavers uh, for the purpose of restoring and creating salmon habitat because salmon are another very important subsistence resource to the tribes. So where are you relocating beavers from and to? Are they showing up in people's backyards or? Oh, um, yeah. (laughs) Okay. Um, Yeah. So funny enough, most of the work that I do is actually off of the tribe's reservation. They're located 40 minutes north of the Seattle area, Um, but they have what's called a ceded territory. So all of the well, essentially the the historic range of the Tulalip tribal members um, and all of the area that they essentially lost when they were placed on reservations. So for Tulalip, what that looks like is anywhere um, in Western Washington around north of Mount Rainier, all the way up to the Canadian border. So the tribes maintain hunting and fishing rights within that ceded territory. So 
anywhere within that range, I can do wildlife management for the tribes. Oh, wow. I had no idea that that was how wildlife management and also the um, kind of land management was was done. And So um, they are a federally recognized tribe. So I'm a government employee, technically, but we can we can do this work on any public lands. So a lot of our project partners are the U.S. Forest Service or the State Department of Natural Resources, or we work a lot with the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife. Oh, okay. State and federal. And then in terms of the beaver project, we are trapping beavers that are considered nuisance animals. I always put air quotes around nuisance <laughs> that are causing problems with their damming activity in essentially uh, human dominated environments. So I work a lot with counties and private landowners where beavers, sorry, my the chameleon is making noise above. Oh, what kind of noise does a chameleon make? I must confess, I don't know. She's climbing on the, the mesh of her cage. I just didn't want that to come into the sound. Oh no, we want that. We want, okay, we want uh, uh, unscheduled appearances from animals. And... Yeah, I guess that's appropriate in this case. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, so we're, we're trapping beavers from areas where they're considered a nuisance animal, where their damming activity is flooding out county roads or impacting people's farms or their homes. And we're relocating them up to unoccupied habitat on U.S. Forest Service land. So the tribes have a memorandum of agreement with the United States Forest Service to do restoration on their lands. So what's a typical day like in the field? I mean, you know, I'm sure that most typical days are probably doing some paperwork or something, but when you get the call to go do a beaver relocation, what does that feel like? What does that look like? Yeah, I don't have a typical day, which is honestly one of the things that I love about my job. I'm the type of person that loves variety. So this job is perfect for me. To kind of paint a picture for you this week as an example, on Monday, I was out in some farmlands assessing potential trap sites for beaver relocation. On Tuesday, I was hiking up in the mountains to try and find a deceased mountain goat to recover the GPS collar that it was wearing. Okay. On Wednesday, I went out down south uh, near Mount Rainier and was assessing some potential opportunities to enhance forest areas for elk forage. Yesterday, I was also up in the mountains checking up on some beavers that we had previously relocated and assessing that habitat. And today I was catching up on emails and talking to you. All right, cool. So, all right, well, then I take back my previous statement that most days are doing paperwork. It sounds like four yeah. or five days. That's great that you're actually out in the field because that's how you manage wildlife. You actually have to be out there seeing it. You can't manage wildlife from a desk. It's very difficult. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so I, I want to ask, how were those beavers that you guys relocated? How are they, how are they surviving or thriving? They're doing really well. Uh, the vast majority of them were still right where we left them, which is what we want to see. And they're uh, actively building dams or maintaining dams that um, we had previously recorded at those sites. Yeah, the habitat is is looking a lot better than it did before we put beavers. Oh, that's really cool. So I want to I want to dig a little bit more into how beavers are helping the salmon. But first, I want to know if you can break down for us what an extraordinary day is like when you guys are actually doing a trap and relocation and how that goes down. 
you know, in terms of an extraordinary day, it has to consist of one of two things, either a sense of adventure or a sense of fulfillment. And I think some of my favorite days in terms of adventure is um, working on the mountain goat project. I, I get the opportunity to fly around in helicopters and I get dropped off in the wilderness of the North Cascades to go find a GPS collar on a deceased mountain goat. And while I prefer to see them alive, I get to kind of feel like a detective trying to determine what the cause of mortality was. But in terms of a sense of fulfillment, I definitely get that from the Beaver Project. There's no better feeling than going back to a site that we relocated beavers to a year post relocation and finding a stream that was once basically devoid of function and coming and finding this vast network of beaver dams and this incredibly complex wetland where wildlife are thriving, fish are thriving, the beavers are thriving. That That's one of the best feelings. Oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. I love it. So let's say I live in, you know, the suburbs outside of Seattle and in a a new development and there's a little stream running through the running through the back because that was one of the selling features of the house and and lo and behold some beavers show up and make a dam. How do you how do you guys go about actually trapping them and, and relocating them what's that process like. The first thing we do when we get a call from a distressed landowner is we go out and assess the situation because sometimes it's not beavers that are causing the problem. Sometimes there aren't beavers there at all. But if there are, first and foremost, we'll try and do some education with the landowner and try and see if there's a way for them to coexist with the beavers. We kind of consider relocation to be the last case scenario because you know, there as much value as there is in the places where we're putting these beavers, there's also value in having beavers widespread on the landscape. And this is their native habitat. We have just moved into it. Beavers were nearly extirpated from the United States in the fur trade days. So they're really only just starting to make a big comeback in some of these areas. And they're coming back to areas that have been highly altered by human development. So a lot of people just have no idea how to live with beavers. So like I said, education is a big factor, but when coexistence won't work or in-place management won't work, that's when we relocate the beavers. Or if we find them in a situation where they're either not providing ecological value, um, we remove beavers from a lot of detention ponds um, where they've gotten stuck will relocate those beavers um, to a place where where their damming activity will be appreciated. Okay, so how do how does one coexist with the beavers? I mean, what's the education? I'm curious to know how we change human behavior. First of all, a lot of people just don't know very much about beavers and don't know the ecological value that they provide. They're often pretty shocked to hear of all of the different benefits of beaver dams. In terms of kind of, we call it in-place management, there are devices that you can install in a creek on a beaver dam that can help manage the flow level. We call them pond levelers and beaver deceivers. Uh (laughs) So pond leveler is essentially a perforated pipe that you put through a beaver dam. On the upstream side of that dam, you set it to the level that you don't want the water to exceed. And then the beaver deceiver is caging that you put on 
the upstream side of that pipe. So it basically deceives the beavers into damming that up rather than oh. damming the actual creek. Got it. Why do they make dams in the first place? Yes, so they create dams to provide themselves with what we call aquatic escape cover. So beavers are very graceful and very fast in the water, but not so much on land. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we also refer to them as the milk duds of the forest because pretty much everything loves to eat them. <laughs> so they rely on this ponded water for um, escape from predators. And uh, they also, when they build their lodges that they live in with their families, they have underwater entrances. If you have a dam in your backyard and you want to reduce the water level on your property and you pull a few sticks out of that dam to release some water, you come back the next morning and that dam is fixed, probably because when you lowered the water level, you exposed the entrance to the beaver's lodge. Oh. And they are clued in on that immediately because they feel unsafe. So they want that aquatic escape cover back. Oh so that's God. why it's really hard to, to fight with the engineering power of the beaver. <laughs> yeah, yeah, lots of uh, lots of millennia of evolution that they're figuring that out. So yeah, often a losing battle for humans. <laughs> that's amazing. I love the workarounds that you've come up with, the beaver deceiver and the pond leveler. But meanwhile, they're um, meanwhile they're you know rebuilding it. If you're trying to take it down, how do they know which trees to choose? Yes. Well, they have, like any species, their preferred food species, which for beavers is primarily hardwoods like willow and alder. Um, they'll eat some shrubs. Out here we have salmon berry. So a lot of their food choice has to do with that aquatic escape cover. So beavers won't stray very far from the water of their territory. So they often choose trees that are within striking distance from the water's edge. And as they kind of exhaust those bordering tree resources, they'll increase the height of their dam to impound more water to get access further into the forest. And they're also very good at excavation. Beavers will actually burrow tunnels into the forest coming out from their main pond to access trees that are deeper in the forest. No way! How the heck do they then get them, drag them to the to the they're, water's edge and add them to the They are surprisingly strong, and a fun fact for you about beavers is they have fur-lined lip that actually seal so that their mouths don't fill with water when they're dragging sticks through the water. Well, that's helpful. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it sounds like their choices are based on the convenience factor but also their own comfort and what and proximity. So a lot of the same kinds of traits that humans use when we select when we select either our homes or when we <laughs> shop for food or clothes or anything that we think we need to survive and occasionally we'll take into account things like does this have a conservation impact but I think the, the beavers don't that's not one of their criteria. Yes. Well, the difference with uh, beavers is that they'll often use their chewed food as their building material for their homes. <laughs> oh, wow. Yes, yes, yes. That's true. It's a bit, it's a lot of recycling. Yes. There you go. <laughs> I love it. That's perfect. So they're obviously herbivorous. Yes, they are vegetarians. They eat the, what is called the cambium of the tree, the inner bark layer that holds all of the nutrients. The good stuff. The good stuff. 
you have definitely covered a lot of ground on what your day-to-day -day is like here in, in the present tense. I'm really curious about what brought you to this kind of work. So why don't you tell me about when you first became interested in working with animals and wildlife and do you have an aha story like this was the moment when I knew that I was going to be a wildlife biologist? Yes and no. I, I don't have a particular aha moment from when I was younger, but I would say that I, I definitely get, I, it comes from my parents. Um, I definitely get my sense of adventure from my dad and um, my love for animals from my mom. When I was younger, we would go out in the yard and catch frogs and caterpillars and spend hours going to capture ants to feed the frogs and then releasing the caterpillars after they emerged as beautiful butterflies. And then as soon as I was old enough, when I turned 12, I started volunteering at the Roger Williams Park Zoo in Rhode Island, where I'm from. And I pretty much spent every Saturday at the zoo until I left for college when I was 18. Oh my gosh, <laughs> um, so that's it was, amazing. It was my home away from home. That's where I, I developed a fascination for wildlife beyond my backyard. And through my experience volunteering at the zoo, I had the opportunity to become an Arctic ambassador with Polar Bears International, which you know a little bit about because that's where I met you. Yes, <laughs> we met on the tundra in Northern Canada. <laughs> Not a very relatable story. Yeah, yeah there, there are select few people who've been there and it's really a transformative experience. Absolutely. So I guess you could say that that was my aha moment. Observing polar bears in their natural habitat was just a transformative experience. And before that time, I was convinced that I wanted to pursue a career as a zookeeper. But seeing polar bears in the wild and seeing the effects of climate change and human action on their ability to survive gave me this deep sense of desperation to want to help wild animals. So after that experience, I, I came back and started applying to colleges to get a degree in wildlife biology. From there, I went to the University of Vermont, where I got a degree in wildlife biology and geospatial technologies, or GIS mapping. While I was in college, I spent a summer abroad in Tanzania studying human-wildlife interactions and conflict, which was another one of those aha moments for me. And I knew that after college, I had my heart set on moving west and discovered this seasonal job working for a Native American tribe in Washington where I could work with a variety of species. And when I first moved out here, I, I thought that I would only be in Washington for six months. And now I've worked for the Tulalip tribes for almost seven years. Oh, congratulations. That's great. Thank you. What has been your favorite adventure with wildlife? That's a big one. Aside from all of the great things that I mentioned earlier about the experiences I've had with this job, it would be a tie between seeing polar bears in their natural habitat. I think that is an experience that many people don't get to have. Mm -hmm. um, and I hope that that's an experience that people will get to have in the future if we if we change our habits. But I think one of the best experiences I've ever had was when studying abroad in Tanzania. I had the opportunity to camp in Serengeti National Park for a week, and we went out on game drives, counting animals by day, and had elephants 
trampling through our camp at night. Um, oh I, I had, <laughs> I came uh, head to nose with a wild hyena. Fortunately, I was in my tent at the time, <laughs> um, but that's definitely uh, the hardest my heart has ever pounded. <laughs> wow. But yeah, just, just being up close and personal with some of the species, some of my favorite species that became my favorite species through my volunteer work at Roger Williams Park Zoo. All right. So you mentioned that you were really impacted by seeing the impacts of climate change and then also human-wildlife conflict when you were in Tanzania. Mm -hmm. Uh, What are you seeing in terms of human impact on the wild in the Pacific Northwest of the U.S.? More than I would like to see. You know, we're, we're definitely seeing and feeling the effects of climate change in this region, whether it reduced snowpack and water shortages And more recently, just the devastating wildfires that have been happening uh, in the Northwest. In this past year in particular, as a result of COVID, what we've seen is unprecedented numbers of humans out experiencing nature. And while that's incredible, I think everyone deserves to go out and get those experiences. The, The sheer number of people that are accessing these natural areas is really taking a toll on the wildlife and their habitat. We're seeing a lot more trash and human waste in these areas. We're seeing a lot of unsanctioned trail building through critical wildlife corridors. And, And really just, you know, when you go out into these natural areas to recreate, whether you're a responsible or irresponsible recreationist, you're having an impact. You're leaving a footprint on that habitat. So during COVID, when people really had nowhere else to go. They flocked to the woods. And and now that these parks have been discovered by people who wouldn't otherwise be in these areas, it's been a huge management challenge for for people who manage wildlife and their habitats because these are the last kind of refuges for these animals. So they're getting pushed out of these areas and there's not really a lot of places for them to go. Oh my gosh, so literally human impact. Yes. Tying it back to the beaver project, that's one thing that I just adore about this project because, you know, we're we're doing it to create salmon habitat, but one of the side effects of relocating beavers is that nearly 80% of native Washington species rely on the wetland habitat that's created by beavers. So what we're doing is not just creating salmon habitat, but creating refuges for all of these other animals. Oh yeah, so talk more about how beavers help salmon. Yeah, so when they build these dams, they're impounding lots of fresh water, And what happens when they do this is they create these deep, cool pools, which is really good salmon rearing habitat. But it's also very productive habitat. It increases the number of benthic macroinvertebrates, which these salmon fry feed on. It creates, it when it slows the water down, it creates the opportunity for amphibians to lay eggs, and that creates prey for birds that feed on aquatic species. When we start monitoring the potential relocation habitat, we, we monitor these areas for about a year prior to relocating beavers there, and we really don't get much activity on the game cameras that we set. After we've relocated the beavers and they've completely transformed the habitat, we get everything on our game cameras. I mean, we get bears and bobcats and cougars and waterfowl, you name it, everything is using this habitat. So beavers are really central to all of these species. 
yeah, they create these kind of centralized explosions of biodiversity. And that's my favorite thing about this project. Wow. I just, I'm flabbergasted because <laughs> you just, you know, that there are keystone species that are central to, you know, habitat health. But I, I really had no idea that beavers were so essential. Absolutely. And we need them too. And that's part of the education that we do with people is, you know, now that we're experiencing uh, lots of drought years out in the West, beavers also store fresh water, which is essential to human life. These beaver complexes are incredibly valuable. What rivers are you working? So we were relocating beavers to tributaries of the Skykomish River, the Snoqualmie River, and the Stillaguamish River, all kind of central north uh, western Washington watersheds. Now, do you work alone or is there a whole crew of 10 women that go out? <laughs> I wish. Um, no, I do not work alone, uh, but we do have a relatively small wildlife program. It's myself, my supervisor, Mike Seveny, who's our wildlife program manager. And we just hired a new staff person, Dylan Collins, who is assisting me on the beaver project and other various projects. When we're relocating beavers from around June to October, uh, if we have the financial resources, we'll hire some seasonal staff to help us trudge through the woods with the 50 pound beavers. <laughs> right, right. In a carrier, of course. Yes, of course. <laughs> yes. But what is a beaver trap like? I have a, have a heart trap that helps catch stray cats in your backyard. But mm -hmm. Yeah, we, we actually use the have a heart traps when we transport the beavers. But when we trap the beavers, we're using uh, Hancock traps. They kind of look like a suitcase with the top half of the suitcase being anchored to the bank of a stream or a pond or wherever we're trapping. And then the bottom portion of that suitcase sits underwater and it has a trigger plate. And we use a scent lure to lure in the beavers and they hit that trigger plate and the trap closes and kind of lifts them up out of the water. Oh, got it. So they don't drown. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's ingenious. So yeah. many different ways to outsmart a beaver. Oh. I know. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes they give us a run for our money. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned your colleagues, you have two male colleagues. Do you find that there are mostly men or mostly women in your field? Yeah, I'd say it's still a relatively male dominated work environment, but I'm definitely starting to see more and more women, especially um, younger women that are trying to find internship, uh, which is very encouraging. But yeah, still, still definitely a lot of dudes. Huh. Why do you think that is? You know, I'm not sure. I think historically, you know, wildlife management was seen as this kind of like rugged profession. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I think now women are realizing that they're just as capable as men in these professions. And a lot more women are becoming educated and getting into the sciences, which is, which is great to see. It is great. I agree. As a person who has an ecology and evolutionary biology degree myself, I mm -hmm. agree wholeheartedly. So do you ever find litter? You mentioned, you know, that there's a lot of human impact uh, with so many more people heading out to the wild, which again is, is something we encourage and love, but we want people to tread lightly. Are you finding more litter in the beaver's homes? Is it, uh, you know, are you finding if you guys have a, an animal like the mountain goat you mentioned are you finding when you do a necropsy, there's plastics in their gut or anything along those lines that are like unexpected human impacts? Yeah, not so much when we do necropsies, but yeah, 
we find trash everywhere, even in the most remote reaches of the wilderness areas. It's a lot of plastics. It's a lot of, you know, mostly beer cans. But yeah, I would say it's it's mostly plastic products. That's too bad. So as, as a result of seeing that in places that it shouldn't be, do you have any consumer lifestyle choices that you make as a result of that? Absolutely. Yes. And, you know, Working in the field of wildlife can be very fulfilling, but it can also be incredibly depressing. You know, seeing all of the odds that are stacked against wildlife and most of that being human caused. And so one thing that I have found that gives me a sense of control is my, my own actions and how I interact with the natural world. I've been gradually trying to transition towards a zero waste lifestyle. Sounds more intimidating than it is. Um, You know, you don't have to dive in head first. You can make little changes along the way. But yeah, just buying products, all of the products that I buy are from local shops that do carbon offsetting. And some of the the things, for example, that I've replaced in my home, I use a bamboo toothbrush and uh, little toothpaste tabs. I use dishwasher and laundry detergent pods that come in biodegradable packaging. I use a, a, a dish soap block and a bamboo dish scrubber. So basically, I've just gradually been trying to transition away from plastic products that have a high carbon footprint from shipping Mm -hmm. um, and and use either reusable or biodegradable Mm -hmm. objects in my household. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like your household sounds like the inside of a beaver lodge. (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot of wood, which is why I can never bring a beaver home with me. One of multiple reasons why you should. Yeah, which I, I would not want to. <laughs> yeah, what's what's the size of an adult beaver? Oh, they can get up to 70 pounds. Yeah, they're a lot larger than a lot of people think. And they're also a lot larger than they look um, when they're just swimming around. And all you can see is their nose and their ears poking out of the water. Yeah. And they're in the rodent family. So that's, and their teeth keep growing. That's why they have to keep chewing on things as well. They are the largest rodent in North America. Yes, they have constantly growing teeth. So that's why they need to be chewing on that woody vegetation to file down their teeth. Yeah, it's kind of a chicken and egg thing. It's like, well, they have to chew on it, but it's also what they eat. So it's a good thing that their teeth keep growing so their teeth don't get ground down from all that chewing. Yes, evolution (laughs) knew what it was doing when it created the beaver. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Well, I have long held the belief that it would be cool if we got a third set of teeth as adults. We have these baby teeth and they fall out when we're young and then we have to have these same teeth until we die. Our lifespan has extended so much in, you know, recent centuries that it's not serving us. Yes. Well, I guess that's where dentures come into play. (laughs) All right. Fair enough. All right. All right. You got me. (laughs) So... Well, let's talk about the animals who live with you. You mentioned your chameleon earlier. Why don't you talk to me about your your pets and who you share your household with? Yes. um, Hiccup is my veiled chameleon. She is the newest addition to my family. Um, And I have my blue healer chihuahua mix named Sawyer, both of which were acquired during COVID times. (laughs) So you were one of the many people who who got a dog and well, few people who got a chameleon during lockdown. 
Well, you know, it's something I've been thinking about for many years and quarantine just kind of gave me the excuse to do it. And it's been wonderful. Um, These animals have brought me so much joy in a time where it's very difficult to find any at all. It is amazing how animals can bring such comfort and happiness to our lives. Absolutely. Oh, which reminds me. So what, what's your favorite animal and why? Oh gosh. Um, can I say all of them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I'll, I'll tell you what, you can do your top five list. How's that? Okay. Fair well, how about we go with two? <laughs> okay. um, I, I was going to say, if you, if you asked me seven years ago, uh, without hesitation, I would say polar bears. Definitely Aww. a biased response, but you know, they're, they're the first megafauna that I saw in the wild. And that experience still brings me to tears from time to time. It was just transformative, like I said, but I would definitely be lying to myself and everyone that knows me if I didn't say beavers are definitely my, my favorite species. And, you know, it's not just because I work with them. It's not because they're they're cute and furry and spunky. It's because of that fact that they're a keystone species and because they provide habitat and homes and food and water for all of the other species that I love and want to see thrive in Washington and beyond. I'm convinced. <laughs> I have to cross off some other animals higher up on my list and move beavers up to the top. You're a beaver believer now. Uh- Love it. Love it. Welcome to the ranks. (laughs) (laughs) That's fabulous. Molly, what is your wish for the earth? My wish for the earth is that people would give it a break, especially for the people that love to get outside, that they just wouldn't love these areas to death because it's not just for them. There's animals that need this space and these ecosystems in order to survive. It's when humans come into the mix where people like me need to go out and help these animals because there's all of these human-created factors working against them. For the most part, most people love animals, love to see animals in the wild, and those opportunities are going to go away unless people become more conscious of their actions and their actions' effects on wildlife. That's really powerful. It means a lot to me that a big part of the nature of your work is going back to the very beginning of our conversation is around sustainable hunting and fishing. Mm -hmm. And so how is, how is the take determined for the uh, tribal community in terms of how do they measure what's sustainable? And, and I think it just makes a really good point that you can't take it all or there's Mm -hmm. none left. Yeah, so a lot of that work is done in conjunction with the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife. Sovereign tribes in Washington state are actually co-managers of the wildlife resources in the state. So we work with the Department of Wildlife to set those annual limits. So when I'm going up in the helicopter and doing the annual elk counts, that's the data that goes into us all determining together how many elk is sustainable to be taken in a given year. A lot of the times and in a lot of the game management units where we manage elk, we set different kinds of limits. So in a lot of these areas, you can't take cow elk And that's because we don't want to remove the reproductive females from these populations because the more reproductive females, the more calves, the more sustainable that population is. 
Absolutely. There was a, a point in time where um, I, I'm speaking for myself. I did not <laughs> understand hunting and mm-hmm. didn't realize that it was, you know, such an important part of human animal, human wildlife coexistence. And yeah. shout out to Polar Bears International, which t- <laughs> took us to Churchill, Manitoba, Canada, where we met hunters and trappers who were First Nations people that helped us to get, or helped me to get insight into the human role in actually helping to keep wildlife populations healthy when we interact with them in a sustainable way. Absolutely. Yeah. You think of it like any natural predator to an ungulate species, they're often going after the sick or injured animals in the population, which down the line is meaning that the most healthy and robust animals are getting the opportunity to mate and reproduce. So by removing those sick and injured animals, you're really creating a healthier population overall. Mm -hmm. However, on the flip side, we often go for the biggest buck. That is true. (laughs) I don't condone trophy hunting, but I do condone sustainable hunting for subsistence. (laughs) Yes. Right. I understand. So yeah, it's an, it's actually an interesting way to live more lightly on the land as opposed to say farmed cattle. Yeah. Everyone eat less beef. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Take a page from the beavers book. (laughs) You are amazing. Thank you so much for sharing your time and your stories and your tales of adventure with me. And I wish you great success in restoring the wild spaces in America's Pacific Northwest. Thank you so much, Kathy. This fabulous theme song called The Dash was written and performed by my brother, John B. Nicholas, also known as John B. Free. <laughs>